Good morning, Oasis. Hey, can we show some love to Pastor Julian and Pastor Christina? They are some of the kindest, most authentic people that my wife Jessica and I have ever met. And it's a, it's a blessing and it's an honor to get the opportunity to be here and, and to share with you. Um, Julian and Christina are special. I hope you know that. And they are amazing people. And uh, we are in really, really, really good hands. Can I get an amen in the 11 a.m.? On a Sunday morning, we are in good hands, and uh, I'm honored to be up here. Um, I gotta be, on, I gotta be real with you. I mean, the word that Julian just gave in like a 10 minute window was so profound and so special. It's a little intimidating, and I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of different communicators. And I gotta be honest, Pastor Julian is one of the best communicators of God's word that I have ever heard. And and to be able to to sit underneath that week in and week out is a real special thing. I, I do think, though, that um, in the same way that he has taught me so much about God, I have equally taught him as much about golf. So... So it's, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Like, he makes me want to be a better pastor. I make him want to be a better golfer. It's the classic iron sharpening iron scenario, except it's just a nine iron, you know, but it still counts. And, uh, and so, but I'm, I'm so honored to be here and to share with you. We're in this series called Family Values. Family values. And we're talking about what do we value as a church? What's significant to us? Where are our priorities and our resources? And where is our impact going to be? And, and have you noticed that in this world that we live in, in this culture, it seems like, it seems like everybody cares about everything. Like everyone has an opinion on everything. It matters to everybody. And so people get so fired up about different things. And I think sometimes as a church in that kind of environment, we lose sight of what actually matters to us and to God. And what I know is if you're putting all of your focus on the wrong things, it's hard for God to move you in the right direction. So we need to understand what are our values as a church? What do we care about? What do we pray about? What are we going to try to impact in our community and in this city? And if you don't know, we have six core values, the things that matter most to us. We give together, which Julian just talked about, and we saw how impactful that is with the gas program. We serve together. We pray together. We worship together. We grow together. And we eat together. Those are the things that we do together. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Julian kicked it off with the idea of generosity and how we, how we give together. And then last week, Pastor Sherry, come on, let's make, make some noise for Pastor Sherry. She brought a profound word on how we eat together. And she really focused on the sacrament of communion. And she had so much incredible, just historical information and context that really brought communion to life. And it's a beautiful thing that we get the chance to do. And today, I want to continue the conversation on why it is so significant and important that we eat together. And I know some of you might be thinking, if it's your first time here, or you haven't been to church in a while, you're like, man, a message on eating together. What is he possibly going to say about that? And I, I got to be honest, when I found out I was preaching on eating together, I was like, what am I possibly going to say about that? Like, it sounds like a social sermon. But what's so cool is that as I dove into scripture and I, I looked at the gospel, God revealed to me that in all honesty, the act of eating together is no less spiritual than any of our other values. In fact, eating together is just as spiritual as giving together. It's just as spiritual as worshiping together. It's just as spiritual as praying together. We just forgot it because we don't do it. And so we're going to jump in today, and my hope is that when you leave today, you're going to be two things. You're going to be hungry, and you're going to be with community. And we're going to eat together again. So I, uh, I want to jump in right now, right out the gate. 
And we're going to look at a verse in, or a passage of scripture in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And I'm going to jump around a little bit in scripture today, so follow along. And the words will be on the screen as well. But we're going to start in Mark chapter 2. And this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Okay, he's just starting to, to get started in, in his work in the world. And people are just starting to kind of hear about who Jesus is and, and what he's doing. So he's really, he's setting the, 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 pay, he's setting the table. Come on, pun intended. He's setting the table for what his ministry is all about. And in Mark 2, it says, Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Because there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, listen to this question, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Come on, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Is anybody grateful for the fact that God doesn't see you how the world might see you? God sees you for who you can be. And when he looks at you, he sees the blood of Jesus made righteous in you. You are not scum. You are a son and a daughter of Christ. And if you're taking notes this morning, which I hope you are, start by writing down the title of today's sermon, Table Talk. Table Talk. Write that down. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And Jesus, we're so grateful for the way that you modeled this to us. God, your ministry was centered around the table. And as we talk this morning about how important it is to come back to the table, God, I ask and I pray that you would make it matter to us. God, what, would it matter to us to be in community? Would it matter to us to be engaged in relationship? God, would coming back to the table be such an important task that we would put it on our calendar and we wouldn't skip past it? God, it is part of who we are because it's part of who you are. So Jesus, would you reveal things to us that, that, that show us the significance of this in your eyes so that it can become significant to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Somebody said, amen. Amen. So, so something about me that you should know, uh, I love food, which isn't like a unique thing. Pretty much everyone in this room loves food. But, but I love like really, really good food. Like, like good food. Food, like the kind of food that when you go to pay for it, like you know it's going to sting a little bit because you're playing for like, like, like Julian's talking about a premium blessing. Like you're playing for that premium food. Like you know it's, it's not going to be cheap. Anyone else like good food? Like don't get me wrong, I can get down on some in and out right? I don't mind starting my day off with a big old bowl of chocolate marshmallow mateys. And if you don't know what chocolate marshmallow mateys are, it's the knockoff version of Lucky Charms that you get at Walmart, but it's chocolate. And, and the ratio of marshmallow to mayonnaise is so heavily in favor of the marshmallows that it's legitimately just like crack. Like, it is so good. And it's $3 a bag. I don't mind starting my day off with that. But at the end of the day, what I'm really craving is good food. And honestly, I'm a little conditioned to, to, to love good food so much because when I was uh, in, in L.A. before, this is about eight years ago, nine years ago, before I was in ministry, before I met my wife and had a family, uh, I got a job working as a waiter at a restaurant in Malibu called Nobu, okay? So, oh, we got some Nobu fans in the house. Yeah, you guys make sure you give. That means you got some money. So uh, if you're shouting down Nobu, then uh, yeah, no. 
Nobu, it, the food is so good. It is, okay, just close your eyes. Let's just go there for a second, okay? I'm talking, you sit down, and they bring out this, this Wagyu beef. It's been massaged for 12 hours, cooked medium rare, thinly sliced, and it's set in this truffle butter brown sauce. Topped with crispy leeks and a little bit of sage and a little bit of thyme, and you pull it apart, and it melts in your mouth like butter. Or yellowtail fish so fresh that it feels like you caught it with your bare hands before you even walked into the ocean. And then they, they thinly slice it sashimi style and they set it in this yuzu soy sauce topped off with a little bit of jalapeno and cilantro. So it's got a kick, but the, the, the cilantro balances it out a little bit so it's not too spicy. Not, oh my gosh, guys. It's been eight years. Everyone's about to leave and go to Nobu right now. And then you're going to come back broke, okay? So just hold on. It, the food is so good. And when you've had good food... It's hard to settle. Like, you know how good it is, right? I love good food. And I would make the argument, too, I would make the argument that Los Angeles has some of the best food in the entire country. Can I get an amen? Like, L.A. has some good food. Whether it's a taco truck downtown at 3 in the morning or a sushi spot like Nobu in Malibu or even donuts and, and ice cream. Come on, where's Randy's and salt and straw? Like, we got good food in L.A., you know what else we have a lot of in L.A.? We have a lot of people. Like, we have so many people in this city. This is a highly populated city. Second most highly populated city in the country. And what I have found to be true is that for the most part, now I'm not including everyone here, but for the most part, the majority of the city is made up of people that are far from God. This is a city where the majority of people do not have a personal relationship with Jesus or his church. This is a city that is sitting in, in darkness. This is a city that is searching for something and they're trying to find things that you can only find at the feet of Jesus, but they're trying to find it in other people and in quick fixes. This is a city where the, the, the goodness of God is almost forgotten because the evil of humanity is so in focus. Now, hear me, hear me out. I am not condemning this city. I'm not condemning the people of this city. I love the people of this city. I am just as broken as the people in this city. I only say that because I have a theory. My theory is, if Jesus was alive today, in this context, you better believe he would call L.A. home. Facts. Jesus would be from Los Angeles. You would have LeBron from Akron, and Jay-Z from New York, and Kanye from Chicago, and Jesus from L.A. Like, that's what it would be like. I don't really know where in L.A. he would live. It's kind of fun to, like, ask yourself, like, where in L.A. would Jesus live? Like, I have a hard time picturing him, you know, holed up at a mansion in the hills with, like, the security cameras and the guard and the gate and the Tesla. Although he probably would drive a Tesla. That's eco-friendly, right? Like, I can see that. But I also don't really see him, like, struggling in a WeHo apartment. Like, you know what it is? I got it. I feel like Jesus would have a bungalow in Santa Monica. Because, like, it's, 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 it's close enough to the beach where he could rock his sandals 24-7 and it wouldn't be weird. He could fish whenever he wants. At this point, though, I'm just theorizing. What I know, I feel like Jesus would call this city home. Because everything about this city fits everything about who Jesus is. And everything about this city and the people in this city fit everything about the ministry of the gospel. And the gospel is a somewhat complex and layered message. The story of the life of Jesus has a lot of elements to it and pieces to it. And so we'll, make, we'll say things as pastors to try to simplify the heart or the message of the gospel. We'll say things like, oh, yeah, the gospel is the fact that, that, that God became man and lived among us. Or we'll say things like, the gospel is this, Jesus died so I don't have to. 
right? We'll, we'll kind of reduce the gospel to these simple things to try to make it more of a bite-sized message. And can I tell you what my favorite small bite-sized description of the gospel is? Take a notes, write this down. When I read the gospel, what I see is I see that Jesus liked to eat good food with bad people. That is what he did over and over and over again. The ministry of Jesus is that he ate good food with bad people. If the disciples ever lost Jesus, you know, if they find my iPhone wasn't a thing, and they're like, oh, shoot, where did Jesus go? Their best bet was to go to the house of the worst person in the city, culturally speaking, because Jesus is probably sitting at his table or her table. That's just what he preferred to do. And in fact, it was his preferences that ultimately made the religious leaders so mad. They looked at Jesus in this story that we read in Mark chapter 2, and they said, why is he eating with such scum? They didn't understand, the religious leaders didn't understand why Jesus felt more comfortable at the table of a tax collector than at a table in the temple. They couldn't reconcile that. And the fact that Jesus liked to eat good food with bad people was too much for them. And we know he likes good food, right? Side note. We know Jesus likes good food. Okay? He doesn't like just the basic stuff. He likes good food. We see this in John chapter 2. Very first miracle of Jesus. You guys probably know this story, right? Jesus and his boys show up to the wedding, uh, this, this wedding ceremony, this banquet. And the, the Bible says that after Jesus and the disciples showed up, the wine runs out. I always think it's kind of funny, too, that the wine didn't run out until after Jesus and his friends showed up. Like, like I feel like Jesus, he liked good food, but he also liked to have a good time. Like, can we just be real? Like, it was after they showed up, that's when the wine ran out. And so the host comes to him, and they're like, we got to keep this party going. And Jesus is like, you're right, we do. So they're like, do something about it. So Jesus takes this water, and he turns it into wine. And the host comes up, and he, and he tastes the wine that Jesus had just spoken into existence. And he's like, oh, shoot. Usually we, st- we start with the good wine but you've kept this from us, and now we got to end with the best wine. See, they usually started with the best wine because it tasted good initially, and then they would bring out the worst stuff later when people didn't care as much. But Jesus didn't turn it into no $5 bottle of wine from 7-Eleven. He turned it into the good stuff that you would get at Nobu. Can I get an amen? And, and, And that's, he liked the best stuff. He liked good food, and he liked to eat it with bad people, people that culture said we're not worthy to eat with Jesus. And the, the, the religious leaders, they could not understand the message behind that. In fact, do you realize it was Jesus' table talk and his table manners that was the seed of hatred planted in the hearts of the religious people that ultimately led them to putting him on a cross. This is the first time when they started to hate Jesus for who he was, the mission on his life, what he stood for. It was because of who he sat with at the table. And what's so interesting to me, this is so important that you catch this. When Jesus came to earth and he was born, he was raised up as a Jew to be a rabbi, which means that the religious leaders of the Jewish culture were the people that he would have professionally and spiritually associated with the most. And he knew how much they would hate who he was eating with, and they would hate who he was spending his time with, and they would hate whose table he was sitting at, and yet he did it anyways. Fully aware of the fact that it was that act that would make enemies out of his friends, and those enemies would ultimately put him on the cross. And you would think, if it mattered that much to Jesus that he was willing to put himself on a cross based off hatred that began with this act, you would think if it mattered that much to Jesus, it would matter just as much to us as his followers. 
but can I be 100% honest with you? Somewhere along the way as a church, we got this very wrong. We, we messed this up so bad. Because somewhere in our attempt to be like Jesus or in all of our religiosity, when I look back at the history and the preferences and the tendency of the church, I see Jesus like to eat good food with bad people. But as a church, we like to eat bad food with good people. That's what we prefer to do. That's what we've been doing for generations. Think about, think about the average person that doesn't go to church. And, and when they think of the church, what do they think of? They think of a potluck and exclusion. They think of bad coffee and self-righteous people. They think of a place where they don't care if the food's good, but the people better be good or else I'm not welcome. And then, and then a pandemic comes along and shuts the entire world down, and now you have a whole world eating fast food with no people. We are so far from the Jesus method of table talk and table manners. And can I tell you what this city needs? Can I tell you what L.A. needs? It needs a church that is ready to come back to the table. Uh, uh, and not just any table. It needs a church where the doors are open, the table is set, the food is good. There's no cover charge for who's allowed in. There's no hierarchy for where you have to sit. Doesn't matter what your politics are. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what your sexuality is. Doesn't matter what your income is. Everybody is welcome at our table. Because at Oasis, we set a table based off who it allows, not who it avoids. Because at Oasis, we're going to be the church. People are going to look at it and say, oh, shoot, they eat good food with bad people. Because that's what Jesus did. Doesn't matter what culture calls you. You are welcome at the table of this church. And if we can get that right, church, we are going to make such a big impact in our city. People are going to look at us and say, oh, my gosh, what is God doing over there? God is moving. And we're going to look and say, we're just doing what Jesus did. That's all. It's as easy as that. We're just doing what Jesus did. We need to come back to the table. But what is so significant about the table? Why the table? Why does the table matter so much? Why was the table so important to Jesus? Why was it such an important element of the gospel? What is it about the table? We don't really think about the table very often, do we? Julian mentioned you haven't heard many sermons talked about and centered around the table. Why the table? Do you understand? You cannot separate Jesus from the table. You can't separate Jesus from the table. And it's not because Jesus was obsessed with food, although he did like food. It was because for Jesus, the table was less about being fed and more about going to a place to feed others. See, for Jesus, the table was less about him being fed and more about him feeding others others. It was at the table that Jesus would sit with broken people and forgive sins. It was at the table that Jesus would sit with hopeless people and speak life. It was at the table that Jesus would begin to paint a picture of his heavenly father. It was at the table that Jesus would introduce the idea of salvation. It was at the table where Jesus went from being uh, just a, somebody that was eating bread to the bread of life that was available to the person in front of him. And it started at the table. Can I tell you, I think the table was the greatest tool Jesus ever used. The greatest tool Jesus used for his ministry wasn't a disciple, and it wasn't the Old Testament law, and it wasn't a hospital for healing. It was the table. Because it's where he went back to time and time and time again to transform the lives of the people around him. At the table. I'll give you some more proof that you can't separate Jesus from the table that they are permanently and forever connected and intertwined. All right, go with me here. Uh, where was Jesus born? 
Come on, it's the most famous birth story of all time. Where was Jesus born? Shout it out, somebody. He was born in Bethlehem. In what? In a manger. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough for animals. In other words, the manger is the place where the shepherds would come and they would lay out the food on it for the animals to come gather around and eat it together. Do you understand Jesus was born and immediately placed in the table of the stable? He was born on a table. In fact, what's so significant is it was the lowest table in the world. It was the servant's table. It was the animal's table. He wasn't put on some kingly table. He was put on a table for the animals. because he let, Just to show that Jesus came to serve. And then I mentioned the story of, of uh, Jesus and, and the turning water into wine in John 2. Immediately after that story, the very next verse, something happens that's so profound. I want to read this to you. So, so they, they leave the wedding banquet, Jesus and his disciples... And in John 2, verse 13, it says this. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Guys, what just happened in that scripture is so prophetic and important. Go with me here. You got Jesus and his disciples, and it's early in the ministry. And they go from this wedding, and they go up to the temple, and Jesus sees a whole, a whole community that has turned the temple into a marketplace. The religious leaders that are selling things. Now, Jesus, we would find out all throughout the gospel, he was not a violent person. In fact, he, he was the one with the message of turn the other cheek. And when Jesus was about to be taken away into captivity, Peter sliced the ear off the Roman soldier, and Jesus immediately said, heal. He healed it and said, Peter, we don't do things like that. That's not what we do. We are, we are a, pe a people of peace. Yet what happens in this moment? He was fastening a whip. How do you go from being a people of peace to he's putting a whip together? And he is driving people out. And he sees what's happening. He says, oh, heck no. Not up in here. He sees what's going on in the temple. And he's like, I, I can't let this happen. And so he starts driving them out. Clearly this mattered to Jesus. And as he's driving them out, he's condemning their greed. What does he do? He flips the tables. Why does he flip the tables? Do you notice it's the only thing that is flipped over to make unusable. The coins are scattered. The doves are sent. The tables are flipped. Why is that significant? Because you have to understand. He says, this is the house of my father. You see, the temple was God's house. And inside of a house, there is a table. And when the table is in a house, that table has a purpose. And the purpose of that table is to be a place of community, not commerce. The purpose of that table is to be a place of prophecy, not profit. And when Jesus saw how they had used and abused the tables, he said, we will not use these tables like this. These tables are unusable until we are using them for the glory of God because a table missed used as a table that can be used by the enemy. So he flips the table. It's the only thing he says, no, this can't be like this. And he flips the tables. Because this was the house of the Lord. And a table in a house 
has a purpose and a function. And then fast forward, and last week, uh, Pastor Sherry talked about the Last Supper and how Jesus spent that night before he died with his friends. And literally, it was the night before Jesus was about to be put to death. He knows exactly what's coming. And what is he doing the night before his death? He's not at Top Golf. He's not at Barney's Beanery with the boys, right? He's at a table in a room with his friends. He's sharing stories and breaking bread with friends. And the very next day, he would become the greatest story of broken bread for his friends. And he spent that night at the table. And then fast forward three days. And, and like Julian said, the greatest miracle that ever happened. Jesus is raised from the dead. He comes back to life. He defeats death, the greatest heist of all time. He conquers the grave. He proves that once and for all, he is who he said he was. And it says in John 21, he shows up to his disciples, and his disciples are out fishing. They're in a boat, and it says they see him like a figure on the shore, and they're shocked. They're like, could it actually be Jesus? And so they row in to meet him. And what's the first thing he says to them? This dude just raised from the dead. These were his boys. The first thing he says is, what's for breakfast? I'm not kidding. Look it up. He says, hey, y'all catch any fish? What are we eating for breakfast? In other words, he's saying, boys, you will not believe what I just did. Three days. Took me three days to beat the devil, but I beat the crap out of him. And I'm going to tell you all about it. Let's sit down at the table and talk about it. He wanted to go straight from the grave to the table. Why? Because he went straight from the womb to the table. And every opportunity that he had, he kept bringing it back to the table. You cannot separate Jesus from the table. And unfortunately, I really believe the reason why the gospel has essentially become unwanted leftovers to our church into our culture is because we have repurposed the table. The table sits empty and the stories grow cold. And we got to come back to the table. I think revival is going to start at the table. I want you to think about the table in your home or in your apartment or in your little studio. I got to know my audience here. <laughs> Speaking of myself. But think about the table in your home. Does the table in your home or in your house, does it spend more time with mail on it or meals on it? Is your table a place of convenience or a place of community? Is your table a place where the seats are empty or the stories are full? I mean, honestly, like some of us, we don't even have a table. We swapped it out for a kitchen sink or a kitchen counter with some bar stools, Right? Or, or we bought a smaller condensed table that fits in between the, the couch and the TV and we call it a table. But let's be honest, it's where you put your feet when you're watching the game. Like, you don't actually, like, it's not a table. And I think the fact that we have so undervalued the table is a sign of a greater problem, a bigger issue. And that's this. As a culture, we prefer microwaved isolation instead of mealtime inspiration. 
We would rather microwave something fast, get it now, sit down by ourselves and be distracted so we don't have to think about our problems, so we don't have to think about the world. We don't want to put in the work to actually prepare some food, sit down with some friends and be inspired by the stories that are coming out. We, we've, we've conditioned ourselves to be so just... Our, our immediate response is to go for microwaved isolation. But can I tell you, revival starts with mealtime inspiration. When we come back to the table, gosh, miracles are going to happen. Stories are going to be shaped. God is going to move. I really believe the table is the most sacred piece of furniture that you have. The table is the most sacred piece of furniture you, in fact, do I want to say this? I'm going to say this. I'm going to go. I believe this. I'm going to go there. I, I believe. Hear me, hear me out. This is a pretty big statement. I believe if used right, the table is just as intimate as the bed. Oh. Some of you are, you're not sure about that because you've used the bed way more than the table. And so you forgot just how intimate the table can be. And you're like, the table is a place of intimacy? Yeah. 100%. Here's the problem. It doesn't, like, like our culture, we, we focus on the table and we, or we focus on the bed and we forget the table. And I get it because, like, in a way, the music industry probably wouldn't go so hard if we were singing songs about the table, right? Like, if that song by Jeremiah about what happens on your birthday was called Birthday Dinner, it probably wouldn't be on the radio, you know? We, we probably wouldn't be bopping that one. Or if Drake's like, girl, you used to call me on my cell phone late night when you need some food. It's like, what? It's 3 a.m. And you're calling me about food? Like it goes from a booty call to a foodie call. <laughs> I feel like Julian would make that joke, which is why I'm so proud of it. Or if Justin Bieber's on the radio and he's like, girl, you got that yummy yum, that yummy yum. And what if he was actually just talking about a nice woman who is an incredible chef and at her table is amazing food and the door is always open and you can come and you can sit at the table in community and just enjoy some yummy yum food. No! That is not what that song is saying. Nor would you listen to it if it was. It doesn't hit as hard. It's not, it's not going to be a hit. We want to talk about and sing about and rap about the bed. And you know what? For so long as pastors and preachers and as a church, we have been saying things like keep the bed empty until it becomes holy. Let me tell you something. That's true. 100% true. The bed is a place of holiness and intimacy, and you need to keep the bed empty until it becomes holy. I'm not dismissing that or diminishing it. All I'm saying is that when I look at the life of Jesus, I feel like we should be saying just as much, keep the table full because it's already holy. It's not about maintaining the holiness and intimacy of the bed. It's about the fact that the table is just as much a pathway to intimacy. But we never talk about that. Do you notice that when, when a couple has sex before marriage, God doesn't go in and flip over their bed? But when people are selling things in the house of the Lord and they're misusing a table, he'll go in and flip over their tables? What does that say to you about the importance of a table? Do you realize something can be important without having to bring down the importance of the other thing? Both can be important. God can care about both. All I'm saying is that as a culture, we have, we have elevated the bed to such a, a high degree, and we have just stomped on the table. 
and we need to come back to the table. I find it so interesting that, that um, you know, our God is a God of intimacy. Jesus, uh, let me actually read this. Uh, the mission statement of our church, I'm going to read this so I don't get it wrong. I might get fired if I do. I don't want that to happen. I've got to get this in, I got to get this right. The mission statement for our church is lives transformed through intimate relationship with Jesus and each other. Okay, we're in a, we're in a series on values. This is our mission. Lives transformed through intimate relationship with Jesus and each other. Do you know where that intimacy happens? Not the bed, the table. The way that we carry out the mission of this church isn't through the bed, it's through the table. Intimacy happens at the table. And Jesus, I hope you know this, he wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. He wants to be your personal intimate father and he wants to care for you and he wants to be a part of your life. He wants to know you. In fact, in Revelations 3, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we will what? Share a meal together. In other words, God is saying, listen, I am standing at the door of your heart I am standing at the door of your life, and I am knocking patiently. And I'm not going to force myself in, because if I force myself in, that discredits any intimacy. That's not intimacy. I'm going to wait for you to welcome me in. And whenever you are ready to welcome me in, to have a personal relationship, I will come in, and, and we will what? We will share a meal together. I find it so interesting that Jesus is our true source of intimacy. And he never shared a bed, but he always shared a table. And yet as a church and a culture, we only focus on the bed as the pathway to intimacy. And we miss out on the table. Because what the bed is to romance, the table is to community. And honestly, when you're at a table and you're embracing community and you're sharing food and stories, you're not just passing a plate. You're passing a piece of yourself. You're not just sharing a meal. You're sharing in the message that Julian was referencing earlier about what God's doing. And, and, and you're, you're passing stories as well as sides. Like you're, when, you, when you come together and you share in this moment at a table you're, 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 you're sharing laughter and connection and conversation. And one of my favorite theologians puts it this way. He says, if we really want to learn someone's story, sitting down at the table, breaking bread together is the best way to start. Because as we sit and eat together, we don't just pass food around. Fellow diners pass bits of themselves back and forth, exchanging tales as well as condiments. So he says, what's the mortar to build community? In other words, what's the, what's the thing that holds community together and is the foundation of community? The grout of grace that is ladled out at mealtime. The table is intimate. The table is relational. Sherry mentioned last week the Passover meal, and she talked about how that meal would go on for hours. It was a feast, course after course after course. Can I tell you why they had so much food and why the meal took so long? It wasn't because they were slow eaters. It was because they were really good storytellers. 
And when they would come together and at this mealtime, they had so many stories of God's goodness and so many stories of what God had done. And they were sharing in the remembrance of God passing over in his grace and his mercy. And the purpose of the food was just to outlast the stories. They didn't want to have empty plates with full stories. So they, they would have so much food because God had been so good and there was so much to share with each other and build each other up and encourage each other. And the food just had to outlast the goodness of God. That's why it went on forever. What do we have like that? What moment do you have in your life where you get together with people and the purpose of food isn't to be consumed, but is really just to outlast the conversation? Oh, my gosh. What if we made that an intricate part of our daily life or our weekly life or our church life or our family life or our friendships? What if that became something that was just as significant to us as it was to those that were remembering Jesus in the early days? There's a... Uh, there's a scholar named George Meyerson, and he recently wrote this study on happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone's chasing happiness. And so he put together this study where he was looking at what are the, the commonalities between moments of joy and happiness in people's life. And he tracked 250 pages worth of moments and instances trying to figure out what is at the root of happiness. And this is what his conclusion was. He said that humans are happiest hanging with friends, gathered around tables with good food, conversation, and laughter. And then he said, if you can get that table outside where the sun can kiss your skin, according to Meyerson, you have won the lottery of life. Come on, Oasis. You want to see your joy increase? You want to see your community increase? You want to see God move in your life? Buy a table or just rent one or use the one in the park. Get it outside, invite some people, and have good food. And watch how something shifts in your life, in the life of our church. Hey, I want to invite the band to come back up. I want to close with this thought. I'm going to jump back into Scripture really quick in this conclusion. In Genesis chapter 2, you have the, um, the very first command that God ever gave. I don't know if you know this, but the first command God gave... It wasn't in the Ten Commandments. It was in Genesis 2. And this is what God says. He's talking to Adam. He says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's the first command of the Bible. The last command is in Revelation. The very last, not just book, but in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the very, very end of the Bible. It's the last command God gives. He says, is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will come, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first command God ever gave was eat. And the last command God ever gave was drink. Because in the middle... It's all about coming back to the table. God said, eat, drink, and do it all at the table. And church, it's time we come back to the table again. And, and I was thinking about as we leave this morning and we obey that command to eat, drink, and do it together at a table. What do our tables need to look like? Because we have to have a table that looks different than what the world's setting. Our table needs to stand out because it's a different kind of table. It's a table where everybody's welcome. It's a table where there's, there's no cover charge. 
It's a table that's open to anybody at all times. So I want you to take these, these couple of ideas with you home. And, and as you begin to come back to the table in your life, remember, this is the fabric of your table. Number one, the table is a place of invitation. It's for all people. You cannot have a table that, that also includes exclusion. If your table is exclusive, I don't think God's going to use your table. If you're setting plates up and they already have name cards on them and nobody else is welcome, I don't know that God is going to use your table to impact the lives of people that he's trying to reach. You see, the table that we set here at Oasis and the table that the people of this church set is a table that is open for all people. It is an invitation kind of table. Everybody is welcome. You want people looking at your table and asking, why do they eat with such people? Why are there so many people at that table that don't belong together? Why are they disagreeing? Do you realize that food is the number one, like, like food calms people down. It's amazing how you could have a conversation about disagreements and when there's food involved and you all agree the food is bomb, you're good. Like, it doesn't matter what they're, at the end of the day, it's like, oh, I disagree, but yo, how good is this food? Like, invite people to your table that don't belong there. And then watch as relationship and community and transformation and unity begin to happen. So it's a place of invitation. The other thing, it's a place of preparation. All time. I hate to break it to you, but if you do not like eating together with people at a table, you may not enjoy heaven as much as the rest of us. Because the favorite picture that Jesus used as what heaven would be like is a banquet in the hall of his father where we are all seated in the presence of God and you are side by side with your brother and sister. And I have to imagine heaven's going to include a lot of other great things. It's going to have soft serve ice cream. All you can eat, you better believe that. But at the end of the day, a lot of our time in heaven is going to be spent at the table in the presence of God. So understand, as you open your table and you invite people into it, what you are doing is you are practicing for your eternity with Christ. If you get good at this now, if you learn to love this now, you are gonna love when heaven comes and you spend your entire eternity in the presence of Jesus at the table. So it's a place of invitation. It's for all people. It's a place of preparation. It's for all time. But finally, it's a place of transformation. Guys, the table is an altar. In the presence of God, the table is an altar. It's the place that Jesus would go back to time and time and time again to transform the hearts and the lives of the people that he loved. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone is willing to let me in, I will come in and eat with them. What he's offering is the bread of life. What he's offering is a cup that overflows. He's offering himself broken and beaten and battered for you. And the reality is there are people in this room and you can't bring people to your table because Jesus isn't there yet. Before you start building a table for others, you need to set the first space for Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is saying, I 
I just want an opportunity to sit at your table. And you know what? I'm not going to do an altar call moment. I'm not going to ask you to give your life to Jesus right now because I don't want to pressure you into doing that. All I'm asking, do you realize when Jesus sat at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners and the scum, he didn't force himself on anybody. He just wanted a conversation. So my encouragement to you is to see the table as an altar, to allow Jesus to have a seat at your table and just begin the conversation of God. Are you real? God, do you love me? God, do you have plans for my future? God, are you out there? God, are you somebody that is living on the inside of me? God, do you want to use me? Do you want to bless me? Do you have something more for me than where I'm at? You need to have that one-on-one personal meal with Jesus and let him show you how real he is. Because the table is a place of transformation. And when you sit at the table with Jesus, it goes from a table to an altar. Come on, let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. And we're so grateful for the way you modeled this in our life. And God, I ask right now that as we leave this place, God, would we have just a deeper desire to come back to the table as a church? Will you show us, God, how to do this? Will you encourage us and embolden us to make it a place of invitation, to make it a place of preparation, to make it a place of transformation? God, would you help us set the table? Would you remind us that eating good food with bad people is how you started a movement and a a mission that changed the world? God, in a world where everybody is sitting in, in microwaved isolation, would you remind Remind us as Oasis Church, as the people of this house, that we have a responsibility to go out into our community and to bring the community closer to us and closer to you through the table. God, would the table become more than just a thing in our house? Would it become a tool in our house? God, would we come back to the table, a place where you are waiting for us now and forever? God, we love you so much, and we're believing that something's going to shift as we begin to do this right in the name of Jesus. Amen.